0: The Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. (laughs) This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM.
1: Introducing Air Commodore, retired Kevin Henderson, Master Defence Studies. Learning to fly on tiger moths and chipmunks at Newcastle Aero Club while he was still at school, Kev had his pilot's licence 12 months before he was legally able to drive a car. Kev completed the of pilot's course in 1962, after which he gained experience on the Dakota transport aircraft. Kev was a 22-year-old flying officer when he flew into Vung Tau, South Vietnam, in a Caribou short-field transport aircraft as part of the original RAAF transport flight Vietnam. This tour was eye-opening and challenging, and he returned to Richmond in 1965 and changed a much more mature person than when he left the previous year. After Vietnam, Kev flew two ferry flights of caribou across the Pacific. Earlier ferries had been across the Atlantic. In late 1965, he flew in Papua New Guinea, establishing caribou operations there. A posting to 37 Squadron followed, flying the new C-130E Hercules until 1970. He spent a lot of his time on freight shuttles and medevac flights between Vungtau and Richmond. In 1970, saw Kev on posting with the United States Air Force at Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina, flying the Hercules C-130E tactically. He later used that experience when he became commanding officer of 36 Squadron in 1979 to introduce the new C-130H. Kev spent two years with the Army's Headquarters 1 Division at Inaugura in the mid-1970s as the Army's first Divisional Air Liaison Officer. Kev also spent three years in the Australian Embassy in Jakarta in the mid-1980s as Air Attaché. His long and broad career saw him retire in 1992 as one of the RAAF's most experienced tactical air transport operators with wide experience. Well, Kevin, nice to have your company and thank you for being part of this wonderful series of podcasts. That's fine, Gareth, and good morning. Now, you actually got your pilot's licence before you got your car licence. How did that happen?
2: Sure. Bear in mind, this is in the 1950s, so it's not that long after the Second World War, but the Second World War doesn't mean anything to me. My father wasn't, uh, he was uh, still working at the BHP during the war. Uh, I used to, when I was a a kid at primary school, used to put together scrapbooks and that sort of thing of of aircraft. I used to think that I had virtually every aircraft in the world in the scrapbook. That's the earliest memory I've got of, uh, of interest in flying nothing else. At the weekend, my brother and I used to, this is in Newcastle, by the way, my brother and I used to play badminton at the local uh, showground. And on the way home, used to ride past the local aero club, which was the aero club and the airfield is where the Knights Stadium is now. And I used to watch the aircraft coming in on the Saturday evenings with papers from uh, uh, Sydney, uh, the Sundays you know the Sunday edition on Saturday afternoon. Then I went to high school and joined the Air Training Corps. And I guess that's really where most of my interest in the air force came from. I was in it for most of my time at high school. I, I was at high school for six years, not five. I did two leaving certificates, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So the air training corps got went for rides on aircraft and that's sort of thing. I and I ended up getting a flying scholarship, and the flying scholarship got me into the Aero Club. I was flying Tiger Moths and ended up getting my pilot's license when I was just after my 17th birthday, so really 12 months before I could drive a car. That's where I started flying. Uh, so when I joined the Air Force, I had uh, about 120 hours flying. The flying instructors that I, I flew with were ex-World War Two instructors. When they knew I wanted to join the Air Force, they virtually started me through a a pilot training course. So I do aerobatics, instrument flying, night flying, formation flying, all that sort of thing. One interesting aspect, I guess, uh, Newcastle in the 50s, television had just started and uh, antennas on houses were very, very tall. Probably 15 feet, something like that. So we had to dodge uh, antennas coming into land in Newcastle. And we couldn't do night flying there for, for obvious reasons. And we had to uh, go up to Rutherford, just, just near Maitland, take aircraft up there. So I'd uh, ride my bike from school, hop in an aircraft, fly it up to Rutherford. we do our night flying up there, sleep under the wing. And the next morning, fly it back down to the aero club hop on my bike and go to school. My parents God, that's my
1: amazing. Life. That's <laughs> amazing. Uh, just out of interest, did you keep the scrapbook that you were creating?
2: Uh, I don't know what happened to it. Like most people, I, I left home at, uh, when I joined the Air Force at 18. I had lots of things at home yeah. right, which I guess got thrown you know, away. And I would like to
1: have. I read uh, in 1960 at RAF College, you didn't quite succeed there. What happened? Tell us about that.
2: Well, I thought in those days that the only way to to fly, uh, to learn to fly in the Air Force, was to go through RAF College. And that was why I did two leaving certificates. The first leaving certificate, I got a bare pass. Bear in mind, I was flying most of the time and uh, didn't do a, a lot of study. And I got a bare four, an A and three Bs, I think I got. That was a, a bare pass. I needed an extra two subjects to join RAF College. So I went back to high school, went back and repeated fifth year. You got the two subjects, got six, uh, six passes. Joined RAF College, number 13 course, in January 1960. I suppose if I'd been at university, I probably, uh, with a lot of difficulty, I probably would have passed. But Air Force College, much the same as Army and, and Navy, uh, you had to do a lot of things other than uh, other than the bare academics. All sorts of things. Although having to do all those other things meant I couldn't spend a lot of time studying, and I didn't pass. And at the end of end of that year, I had all sorts of recommendations from uh, the people staff there, um, my parents, friends. All sorts of people uh, were saying that uh, you should go back and repeat first year and go on. I knew I wouldn't pass. If I'd gone back, I probably would have passed first year, but the same thing would have happened in uh, second year. In second year. So, against all the advice that I was given, virtually everyone i don't remember anyone that uh, recommended that i go to bfts and i obviously knew about the basic flying training skill then they were just on the other side of the oval from raf college i packed up my things walked over the, the oval and joined 41 course one other thing before i get off that uh, people said oh you you'll lose out on promotion everyone on your course will do better than you etc etc that didn't happen i was at least equal in most cases ahead of my contemporaries from the college i I stayed with them right up to uh, right up to group captain so it didn't affect me at yeah.
1: all. just explain to me the, the process you've actually joined the Royal Australian Air Force before you went into RAF College is that what happened?
2: no 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 by joining RAF College that was joining the, that yeah you know, I joined the Air Force as a member of uh, number 13 course RAF College in January 1960.
1: So when that course, you decided to move to another area, you were still a member of the Royal Australian Air Force? Yes. Okay. So, all right, we're doing pilot training now. Uh, What kinds of things did that involve? What sorts of planes were you involved with?
2: The Air Force then were using wind as their basic uh, training, uh, the piston engine training aircraft, and that was at Point Cook. I didn't have much trouble with that bearing in mind. I had the experience. You know, instrument flying was nothing new. Night flying was nothing new, etc. I was comfortable in the air, so I... I did quite well on the basic flying course on the windchills at Point Cook. Uh, that was in 1961, and in about November, I think, we went across to Pierce to do our advanced training. That's on vampires, the Vampire 35, and things weren't as good for me then. I, I was never meant to be a fighter pilot. I uh, didn't have the instantaneous reactions that fighter pilots generally need to have. Uh, I was generally a, a thinking man's pilot, uh, which is, you know, led me, once I graduated, you know, I had a, a bit of trouble at Pierce. Uh, it wasn't all smooth sailing, but I, I passed and I ended up going on to transport
1: aircraft. Whose decision was that? Was that your request to move into a different kind of aircraft, or was it was was it the people above you's decision?
2: No, no, no. That was uh, the people people above me. I know now from further experience. Yeah, you know, the Air Force has certain uh, vacancies. They have vacancies for various pilots, and they had so many fighter pilot slots, so many transport pilots, maritime, and that sort of thing. So I was posted to a transport flying yeah. post, which was School of Air Navigation on Dakotas.
1: It would seem from what you've just said that the air Force has always been very adept in picking the right person for the right job so this person is not going to be satisfactory as a fighter pilot but certainly with transport he's going to be better suited would would you agree with that scenario as as their expertise?
2: I think you're trained pretty much uh, on vampires as a as a fighter pilot, everyone everyone's trained as though they're going to come off the course and go to fighter aircraft. In those days, I I wanted to finish the course and be a Sabre pilot. That's the fighter aircraft that were there. In fact, I've only got a, a few regrets. A couple of aircraft I would love to have flown: a the Sabre, Mustang, and Spitfire. They would. Yeah, most pilots would say the same thing when they're when are yeah. trained. But in fact, the the person that did my wings test was my uh, later on years. Later on Hercules, he became my uh, my commanding officer over there. So uh, I didn't do a good. I failed my first uh, wings test. I had to do it a second time, and uh, he never let me forget it.
1: So you've moved into uh, transport and this was with Dakotas. Tell us about the Dakota. What's it like? What was it like?
2: Well, the, the Dakota, the Air Force had had the Dakota then for what thirty odd years. Um, the Air Force had. Uh, over the years, lots of Dakotas—about 120 odd, I think, 124 or something—they used the Dakota as the short, short-range transport aircraft. In fact, they didn't have any long-range transport aircraft then. It was their transport aircraft, and that sort of carried over from the Second World War. It was a basic transport aircraft from the Second World War. It could do carry things, it could drop paratroops, uh, supply drop. Wasn't easy. Uh, the paratroop and supply drop was all done out the side door. It had a mm. fairly large door instead of the the door that. The- but the Dakota was the was the military version of
1: the DC three. DC three. As a little boy, I can remember I, we lived in Sydney, and my some relatives lived in Brisbane, and my very first trip was on a DC three flying from Sydney to Brisbane. And I can still remember the air hostess coming up and down the the, uh, the corridor, giving all the children lollies so their ears wouldn't pop when it went up. I can still remember it. It's, it was a marvelous plane to be actually in, as I recall. But
2: it was the basic aircraft for the basic transport aircraft for the Air Force. I went on to Dakotas at School of Air Navigation and they were a flying classroom for navigators, two nav cadets plus an instructor. And we were up the front and we flew them all around, uh, all around Australia or some of the advanced nav courses with more advanced people. We'd fly them over to New Zealand through Norfolk Island.
1: So uh, you did actually take the Dakota in your career. You did take it out of Australian territory.
2: Uh, yes, just to New Zealand. We flew uh, through Amberley, Brisbane, across to Norfolk Island into Alharkia in New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, that was the advanced nav course.
1: So you're still a young man at 22 and you get involved in the first caribou conversion course. How did that happen?
2: Well, uh, I stayed at SAIL for a couple of years from April 62 is when I graduated for the rest of 1962 and up to about April, I think it was 1964, I was in SAIL. Then I went to Richmond, uh, 38 Squadron. 38 Squadron were flying decoders as basic transport aircraft. Uh, Going back to SAIL, what I learned on Dakotas in SAIL was a lot of navigation, obviously, but I learned the basics of flying with a crew. We had the basic transport aircraft then was two pilots, a navigator, a signaler. We didn't have uh, a loadmaster then at uh, at sail. So I went to Richmond. I had to learn then about supply dropping, dropping paratroopers, that sort of thing out of Dakotas. This is and learning to look after yourself. Uh, taking an aircraft away, you know, would fly maybe. Up to Darwin to support a fighter exercise that up there we'd fly an aircraft up there and you'd operate by yourself and look after yourself for a couple of weeks. We learned individual operations. That was April 1962. Now at that particular time, the Air Force had decided they needed uh, something bigger than a Dakota. They'd got the C-130A Hercules back in the about 1958. Uh, they wanted something better than the Dakota. generally to support the Army, short-range transport. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Army didn't like the Dakota. As I said before, it was difficult getting things in through the side door. Paratroopers uh, dropped out the side. They didn't particularly like it, but they did. They wanted something better than that, and the Army supported the Air Force's acquisition of the caribou. The Air Force ordered 18 caribou in, I think it was May 1963. So... When I went to 38 Squadron, they were in the process of acquiring, of changing aircraft virtually. Uh, A couple of crews were over in Canada, uh, bringing the first caribou home. The first caribou arrived in Richmond in April 1962, not long after uh, I arrived there. And they started converting pilots and ground crew onto the new aircraft. Pilots uh, learned to fly them, ground crew had to learn the new aircraft. Now, the Caribou wasn't that much different to a Dakota as far as performance and load carrying and that sort of thing. So I had you know, 1, hours, over a thousand hours on Dakotas, so I didn't really have a problem with the performance of the Caribou. What pilots had to come to grips with was you know, it had nose wheel steering, a reverse thrust and and the short takeoff and landing capability. Anyway, I did my first ride in the Caribou, the first flight on the 9th of June, 1964. Now, the reason I remember that, that particular night, I was still single at that stage. I was living in the officer's mess and I was in watching the news on the 9th of June, and saw Shane Portridge, who was the defence minister, make an announcement that Australia was going to provide some caribou to uh, Vietnam. Vietnam. Now, going back one, uh, what I didn't know at the time was the United States had been pressuring Australia since the early 60s to provide some support to Vietnam under the... CETO agreement, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Now, we'd already sent about 30 army advisors to Vietnam, but that's all. And they, in 1963, they pushed Australia to provide some Dakota crews and aircraft. And Australia said, no, we're in the process of changing aircraft. We uh, we can't do that. Now, they kept pushing Australia. And in yeah, May 1964, the government agreed to provide six aircraft and crews by October 1964. The Air Force went further than that. And they said, if the need's really urgent, and apparently the Americans have been pushing fairly hard, we'll provide three aircraft as soon as possible. And the other three aircraft by October. Now that's what led to the announcement uh, on the 9th of June by the Defence Minister that we'd send uh, three aircraft and crews. Now that was news to us.
1: (laughs) That happens in June uh, on the 8th of August 1964. You arrived in Vung Tau, is that correct?
2: Going back a step. I said I did my first flight in 9th of June, we left on the 19th. 33 of us, the original members of RAF Transport Flight Vietnam, left Mascot on the 19th and 20th of. July. Now, I'd only had myself and the other person that was on the first conversion course. We had 35 hours on type. That included a 45 minute conversion to uh, paratrooping and a 30 minute conversion to (laughs) supply dropping. And we went as captains, uh, three crews and some ground staff up to Butterworth to form RAF Transport Flight. And that was formed on the 20th of July. Got our aircraft coming from Canada. We intercepted them coming in from Canada on the ferry, uh, on their ferry flight. Uh, they landed at Butterworth. The crews flew home. We took the aircraft. One aircraft was delayed in the Middle East with a uh, uh, a maintenance issue. It was a little bit late. So we used the time to do a bit more flying at Butterworth. But yes, on the 8th of August, uh, we took three aircraft into, uh, into Vietnam. And that was the beginning of the Air Force's commitment to
1: Mm, Vietnam. I believe leaving for Vietnam, you've described it as being uh, very conspicuous, inconspicuous rather, and you left on a BOAC.
2: Sure. We were told to dress casually, to look a bit like uh, surfers, surfies going off to Bali uh, to, uh, to or something like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the uh, yeah we hopped on the aircraft. Uh, it was a BOAC aircraft. Uh, that was intentional. It wasn't Qantas. There wasn't the feeling in Australia at that stage about Vietnam. In fact, uh, when we were told we were going to Vietnam, we didn't know where Vietnam was. Yeah, where's Vietnam? We knew it was somewhere up in Southeast Asia, but we had a, a very steep learning curve. Yes, we, we went very inconspicuously. We had one-way tickets. No one knew uh, how long we were going to be
1: away. Who paid for the tickets? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. So, look, you've arrived on the 8th of August in Vungtau, and you, your description is rather perce- perceptive. Would you be able to just describe for a friend who's listening to you right now, what exactly did you see on that first day?
2: It was the middle of the wet season. Uh, not that that meant anything to uh, to me at that at that stage. I'd never flown in the wet. But we took off out of uh, out of Butterworth. It wasn't too bad. It was obviously raining. And when we arrived in Vietnam, we went into Da Nang which was a coastal. It was an old French uh, French resort south of uh, Saigon. We arrived, and the weather was was terrible. The three aircraft. We didn't go in formation. We went individually. Small separation. I was in the second aircraft. The first aircraft was flown by the uh, CO. He uh, ended up saying, okay, he got through the cloud, okay, and arrived at Tau." We, after some difficulty, eventually got through the cloud, arrived in Tau in torrential rain. Absolutely shocking. a uh, PSP runway, which we'd never landed on before, a hell of a noise, arrived in the middle of the wet, and that really was the way we were going to operate for the next few months while the, the wet season stayed there. It wasn't a muddy runway at Vung Tower, but we certainly found out later about landing on on muddy runways. But the, the weather was terrible.
1: The caribou in those conditions, it still was an effective device, was it not?
2: Oh, sure. When we started operations, we were, were led fairly gingerly uh, into uh, normal strips for, for the first week or so down around the Delta, a few on the coast, just ordinary airstrips. But very soon, we were tasked to fly into some some very primitive strips, which the Caribbean eventually became very famous for. It was learning on the job. No one uh, knew how to fly the aircraft short takeoff and landing. We developed our own tactics of flying high over the, uh, over the, the airstrip and spiraling down uh, to land. But you're right. some of the strips we had to go into uh, they were all uh, mud strips and in the wet mud became flowing mud. and eventually we the way we decided whether we were going to land we'd get uh, we'd talk to the people on the ground and say, okay driver, the Jeep up the the strip, turn around, and if they didn't lose control and slide off the strip, we'd land. But the caribou, with its soft, low-pressure tyres were and reverse thrust, they were the perfect aircraft for that. And Australia's operation of caribous in Vietnam were probably exactly what the caribou was, uh, was designed for. The Americans didn't use it that way. They generally flew straight, landed straight ahead. They didn't go into a lot of the strips that we went into. In fact, we became known as a, as a can-do outfit. I don't remember ever refusing a task. I don't think anyone did. Uh, we went into wherever they wanted us to. Generally, it was into strips that the Americans either didn't, or couldn't, or wouldn't go into. And we take loads into, and most of the strips were, some of the really primitive strips were along the border. And we operated in strips from virtually up near the North Vietnamese, uh, the border with North Vietnam, all the way down Laos, Cambodia, right down
1: sure, to the, sure. the Delta. Sure. With every aircraft, ground crew and parts, no doubt, are imperative for the effective use of any device. Uh, what was support for the Caribou's like?
2: Uh, from Australia. Non-existent. Bearing in mind that 38 Squadron were in the in the middle of taking delivery of a brand new aircraft, and really had only got a, a couple. The the support package for anything like that, and I learned later on on Perks, uh, when we took delivery on, the support package is one of the last things that arrives from the factory. 38 Squadron didn't have the the spares, so Australia really couldn't support us very much. When we arrived in uh, Vietnam, a C-130 had been there, and Australian C-130 had delivered what little support we were going to get. We had a cherry picker, which the Americans didn't have, and they thought that was magnificent, being able to use a You know what I'm talking about with yep. cherry picker? Yes. Um, a crane that could really allow people right up to the top of the tail. They had that and uh, a light generator, self-generator light package and not much more, not not too many spares. The reason we went to Vung Tau, uh, the decision was taken to go into Vung Tau because that's where the US Army's Caribous were based. They were based there. It was a large army unit. The government had arranged with the Americans that they would provide the spares support for us. In other words, if we needed spares, uh, we'd go to the American system and uh, and get
1: it. Did that also mean ground crew or did you have your own ground crew?
2: Oh no no we had our own ground crew.
1: Yeah right uh, okay
2: the 33 people are part of the first package that arrived Yeah, 33 people were what seven pilots and the rest were all other than administrative officer the rest were all maintenance people so no we had our own ground crew and we developed operating in Vietnam the the air crew and ground crew developed a rapport that was almost I wouldn't say unknown but uh, it wasn't usual within the air force we became very close ground crew and air crew we had to be because flying days were long we We'd take off out of vongtao before dawn we'd go up to saigon uh, get our initial loads go out and we'd arrive back at vongtao after dark then the eight the maintenance people would take over take the aircraft and they'd have to turn them around and get them ready to fly the next morning in uh, the whole time we were there we were providing of the six aircraft we would provide five aircraft online that's a uh, and that allowed us to fly extraordinary number numbers of hours. The sorts of hours that we'd, uh, we'd fly, the unit was tasked or was expected to fly a certain number of flying hours. In fact, we ended up flying about something like 500 hours a, a month. Each pilot would fly in the order of 100, 110 hours a month, and that's four or five times what you'd expect to fly in Australia. Now, the only way we could do that is if the maintenance crew could uh, turn the aircraft round. Yeah, we'd fly into these strips I was talking about. Yeah, there'd be chips off the propellers. They'd have to be ground down and all the rest of us, or you'd, you'd damage the aircraft, or you occasionally take the odd ground through. And the aircraft have to be patched up overnight so that they could fly the next mm. morning. Now, we didn't have any spares. The maintenance crew were quite adept at going to the local rubbish tip and find... You're kidding. A, uh, no no i'm not uh, and they'd find uh, a busted carburetor or Magneto detail or something like that they'd take it to the stores and get a new one we eventually built up a store system <laughs> like we, we could go quite legally go into the stores and and get spares that we wanted but what we were trying to do was build up a a spare engine because if we if we needed to do an engine change that Normally, uh, in normal operations, that would mean the aircraft would be offline to maybe 24 hours at least, uh, maybe 48 hours or longer, depending on what was wrong with it. Well, if we could build up a spare engine, we could take one out, put the new one in, and slowly, by doing what I was saying, uh, we ended up, before I left up there, we had a spare engine.
1: You said the uh, United States Army had caribou's as well. Did you develop yep. a strong relationship with them to, so that they could support any parts that you really needed and didn't have?
2: Yeah, I've been asked that a lot. I don't remember interacting very much with US Army aircrew. I guess that's because we were never there. We were out flying. We were tasked by the Air Force, even though we were supporting special forces and that sort of thing. And we operated quite differently to the US Army. The only reason we were at Tower was because of the support that the the government arranged with the US government. By the way, the base commander was very, very supportive of us. Uh, he and our and commanding officer, Chris Sugden, they got on very, very well and Uh, When the odd problem uh, would occur, they would get it sorted out very quickly. Mm. He was very, very supportive of providing spares for us.
1: I've been told that the living conditions were, what's the best way to describe it, yuck?
2: Very, very primitive. This will give the wrong impression, but I'll say it anyway. The officers went into uh, what was called the Pacific Hotel. It was an old French hotel. It was very, very primitive. It was rat infested. The food was virtually inel- uh, inedible. So we ended up uh, very early in the piece. while we were staying there. We ate on the job we're up at Saigon, that sort of thing. But we were fine. Uh, we could put up with that, the officers, if we, uh, if we had to. We knew we could uh, live that way. Uh, but the problem was the airmen. They were given the only quarters that were available. The base commander, to his credit, he gave us what he could. So the airmen were given these quarters, but they were open tents beside a, a horrible sewer with generators going 24 hours a day outside. They couldn't sleep. It was, bear in mind, it was the wet, mm. so it was very humid. Uh, they couldn't get any rest, and Chris Sugden, the CO, decided very early, must have probably only a week or so after we were there, that had to change He and one of the other pilots and scouting around town and found a a disused motel, uh, and we virtually took it over. And we paid for the rent out of our own pockets initially until it was all sorted out. Uh, We, Everyone moved into into this single accommodation, airmen and officers alike. And this was the beginning of the uh, real rapport that uh, we developed. We're all in the the one place together and Australians being Australians was as far as the Airmen were concerned, it was six to a room, but they all had a shower. They had showers, they were cold showers, but they all had had, uh, showers. And Australians being Australians, we reserved a room for uh, a fridge and the obligatory beers in the, in the fridge. And every Saturday evening, we all got together. That was the end of the working week, really six days, Saturday night, we'd have a, a bash and we solved all the uh, all the units problems over a, a couple
1: of beers. Yeah, but that's the way isn't it? You solve all the problems of the of the world over a couple of beers on right. a Saturday night. Let's jump to Da Nang and uh Nian Trang. Uh, you described it as getting rather interesting and I also want to talk to you or you to talk to me about your low level extractions and cool. how good the caribou was in that.
2: I said that we were fed fairly easily into operations but very quickly after a a week or so we were operating into uh, short strips and the Americans tasked us very quickly. I can't remember, but it would have been within the first month to provide an aircraft on detachment to Nha Trang and another aircraft on detachment to Da Nang. Now, Nha Trang was about along the coast anyway between Vung Tau and and Da Nang. Da Nang obviously was not that far from the, half an hour from the North Vietnamese border. Now, Vietnam was divided up into four military corps areas. One corps, or I corps, as it was generally known, was the area virtually in the, the northern part uh, from the North Vietnamese border, not that far south of da Nang? Two Corps was generally the highlands, and three and four Corps were the, were the delta. The aircraft at Nha Trang would generally support the special forces camps around the border, but uh, sometimes a little bit further in from the border in two, three, and four Corps, the aircraft at Da Nang flew the what really were the more interesting and more difficult missions uh, in the border area along the, the South Vietnamese side of the border, where the Ho Chi Minh Trail came down, and the special special forces camps were along those borders. And we would fly the aircraft into very short strips beside the camps, or if they didn't have strips, we'd do supply drops to them. Or in some cases that were very, very primitive, and one particular place I can remember, which was a a listening post right up on the uh, North Vietnam, Laotian, South Vietnam border, was a listening post there with a whole bunch of aerials, but no strips, and it was in the mountains. And the only way we could uh, do... A, uh, a supply drop in there was the low legs that you, you mentioned. You know, low level extraction or low legs, uh, meant that the uh, aircraft dropped. We had a, a little system in the back of the, the caribou, a little uh, rack in the roof that uh, would drop a parachute out the back, attached to the load and pull the load out Now if you did a normal supply drop, uh, that would be a pallet under a parachute and land on the, the drop zone. Now, where there wasn't a drop zone, we had to put the egg or put the develop a, a system that would put the package as close to where we as close to the the friendlies as we could, and that meant flying the aircraft. Very very low, only a couple of feet off the ground. Well, coming in reasonably high, but then descending to about three or four feet off the ground, flying uh, there and extracting the load out the back, and it would just drop onto the ground using the same system. L-
1: that, uh, let me get that. Th- let me just get that straight. You are three or four feet from the ground in a, in your caribou. Yes. That re- uh, that surely uh, requires expert flying ability.
2: Yes, it did. And uh, in those particular places that we were doing it, uh, they were generally hot areas, and we'd more often than not have any fighter, fighter support. We'd have two two aircraft. Uh, one would sit on the wing. The other one uh, generally would be up front uh, trying to draw some fire, work out where the fire uh, where the, uh, the enemy were, uh, hopefully to draw some fire so the black on the wing could uh, could you know, polish them
1: uh, off. Were, were they Royal Australian Air Force fighters that were, no, they were USAF?
2: They were generally uh, either USAF or South Vietnamese. Yeah. Uh, the USAF had embedded crew in the South Vietnamese Air Force, but more often than not, we were hoping they were US, uh, US pilots. They, yeah. a, they were the better ones. So, were Sky Raiders, A-1E.
1: Yeah, right, okay. I just can't get my head around a, a caribou of a reasonably large aircraft being three or four feet from the ground and having to worry about what you're dropping at the back for the people on the ground. It
2: was all controlled from up the front. The uh, The loadmaster had, had it all rigged up and we could operate a, a switch up the front that would deploy the chute off the rack, which was just up near the tail of the aircraft, throw so it, it would then pivot out into the slipstream, attach to the load, and pull the air, pull the load out the back mm.
1: of the aircraft. How long were you in Vietnam?
2: I came back in mid uh, nine six in April nineteen sixty five, back to thirty eight squadron.
1: So was that your full term within the with that war zone?
2: Uh, no, 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 no. I went back later. It's a bit more to talk about on Caribbean but I went back on uh, Hercules and did a lot of supply drop. I not have a lot of uh, supply flights and medevacs into, uh, into Vietnam on Hercules.
1: Still during the Vietnam War period? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, right. Okay.
2: Before I get off the Caribou's, uh, I mentioned the, the rates of effort that we used to, uh, that we're able to do. The, the hierarchy in Australia couldn't believe, well, the Americans couldn't believe that uh, they thought we had about 25 aircraft uh, up generating the sort of work that we did. The, the hierarchy in Australia didn't believe we'd be able to sustain the, the rates of effort we did. We kept it going the whole time that RAF transport flight Vietnam and later 35 Squadron. It became 35 Squadron in uh, in July 1966, right up to when the Caribou's left in 1972. Kept the same sort of rate of effort. The statistics from the Caribou operation in Vietnam are extraordinary. I'll read them out. We flew... Uh, in the seven and a half years we flew 81,000 sorties totaling 44,000 flying hours we carried 680,000 passengers and 46 million kilos of cargo all with six aircraft now that's uh, that's that,
1: unbelievable that's
2: extraordinary. Now, that's on a, a plaque that we had made that's in amongst all the plaques along the pathways in the Western Courtyard at the War Memorial. That's there for all time.
1: I don't know whether someone has already done it, but from what you're saying, I mean, I, I know a fair bit about the Vietnam War itself and what was involved, but this part of the Vietnam War and what you did with that, those so few aircraft over seven and a half years, that requires a a book of itself, just the, the caribou and the effect. Thank you. Yeah, Suggies Men. Okay, you've got a book. Well done. Is that book generally available, Kevin?
2: Uh, yes, it is. Um, I believe you've spoken to uh, to Don Pollock. Uh, yes. A couple of us, Don Pollock, myself, love Lovett, put together. Well, going back a step, we were tasked at a reunion. We... We arranged Caribou reunions for a 40th, 40th anniversary of arriving in Vung Tau, 45, 50, etc. And at one of them, I think it was the 50th. One of the other pilots said, uh, "Hey, we've we've written books about our operations in in Vietnam in the later stages." But no one's ever written about how we went there and how the operations all started, the sorts of things we've been talking about this morning. So we were tasked virtually to put that together and Yes, that was developed oh, quite a few years ago now, five mm. years ago. Yes. Uh it was sold out very quickly. But there's a second edition. We've just cleared it, and it's being published by the 35 Squadron Association, RTFE 35 Squadron Association in Brisbane. And that should hit the streets fairly shortly. So, fairly for
1: someone short. who's listening who might be interested in getting access to that book or those documents, where, how, and again, what's it called? Suggie's Men. That's what. That's the yeah. title.
2: Yeah, it's Suggie's Men. That's it there. Yeah, well, men. of course, That's someone
1: listening team. can't see that, but it's Suggie's men.
2: Suggie's men.
1: It's distributed by
2: Thirty Five Squadron, uh, RTFE Thirty Five Squadron Association. If you Google that, contact them, and they'll all. Okay. All right.
1: It. That's just something that I certainly, when when we finish our chat, I'll be I'll be Googling and make and putting an order in for. When you reflect back, I'm sure not only you but everyone who came back from Vietnam really did come back a changed person. Would that be true? And if so, how did it change you?
2: Yes, it did. I was a lot more mature, I think, when I came back. Uh, I grew up grew up in, in nine months I was a uh, going right back to, uh, to even school I was a reasonably tentative sort of person uh, shy I suppose that sort of thing which made learning to fly a bit more difficult it took me ages to go solo in the uh, in the tiger moth and that sort of flowed through and it was slow development on the Dakota I was still reasonably tentative. But that changed in Vietnam. We all grew up very quickly and we became quite mature and you mentioned it before and I'll say it, quite expert at flying the, the Caribou. We, we became quite professional pilots. For me, that uh, allowed me to go on to my later flying career as quite a confident transport pilot, and that flowed on to operations in the uh, C-130E and later on in the H model uh, when
1: I was CO. You became CO of 36 Squadron. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Can we
2: go back on the yeah. caribou for a minute before yeah, we finish? Yeah, sure. Uh, bearing in mind, we were still very early in the, the stage of introducing the Caribou into the Royal Australian Air Force. I came home, and uh, we'd only had the Caribou in the air force for for 12 months first of all the uh, we had to get six more aircraft to replace the aircraft that were in vietnam so we had to bring six more aircraft home from canada from the factory and we flew those aircraft i i did both those two two different ferry flights uh, three uh, three aircraft in each flight uh, i did both those and we did those across the pacific whereas the earlier flights came out through Europe, North Africa, that sort of way. Flying the caribou across the Pacific, that was interesting. I know how, even though it was, wasn't the same aircraft, I know how Smithy felt because the caribou is a short-range aircraft, no autopilot, pilot, a hand-flying it for the long flights across the Pacific. In fact, in my logbook, I've got the longest time, longest leg in my logbook is a caribou leg from Honolulu to Canton Island of about four, over 14 and a half hours pilots couldn't get out of, we could get out of our seats, we couldn't go anywhere because to get those ranges we had long long range tanks, big rubberized tanks that, that filled the cargo compartment that provided the extra range but meant we couldn't get out of our seats and walk down the back of the aircraft, uh, anything like that so we had to sort of hand fly them, that was an interesting exercise, bringing them home from Toronto down through San Francisco, Honolulu, Canton Island down to, yeah. uh, down to Australia but after that we uh, started to operate in PNG. Now, we'd been flying, 38 Squadron had been flying in PNG and on Dakotas, and myself included, before Caribou Ops. so PNG itself wasn't, um, wasn't new to us. However, the Caribou provided the capability to the PNG Defence Force, or us supporting the PNG Defence Force, to go into a lot of strips that the Dakota couldn't go into. And we, 38 Squadron, provided a detachment into Port Moresby towards the end of 1965, early 66. Uh, I was part of the early early flights up there and I was a detachment commander early in 66 for a few months. And we flew into all sorts of strips in, uh, in PNG. And really, I've said to many people that I didn't learn to fly in Saile or Vietnam. I learned to fly in PNG, and most pilots say that to operate in an aircraft successfully in PNG, you don't kill yourself. You've got to really know what you're what you're doing. We provided three aircraft out of Port Moresby from 1965 till yeah you know, to the early 70s when uh, PNG became uh, independent.
1: It must have been a particularly sad day in november 2009 when the caribou was taken out of service
2: yes it was uh i went up to townsville then when uh when the aircraft came home from vietnam they came out in february 1972 that was 35 squadron it ended up, 35 squadron ended up in Townsville supporting the, uh, the army uh, and it became a composite squadron of helicopters and, uh, and caribou's in support of the task force or later on the brigade in, uh, in Townsville. But the aircraft, the caribou was getting towards the end of its life. It had been uh, battered fairly badly all over the place, PNG, Vietnam and around australia and the aircraft had to be taken out of service and uh in november was it november 2009 uh, and yes the aircraft was uh, was finished uh, a lot of us that were original caribou people or dakota's then caribou's were in townsville that day to see the uh, see the aircraft uh, finally fly from then aircraft, you know, there's an aircraft here in Canberra in the War Memorial. There's one down at Phillip Island and scattered around the place. But uh, yes, it uh, was 45 years of operations.
1: Are any of those caribous that were actually in Vietnam in storage in, in any of the memorials around Australia?
2: Yes. The one in Phillip Island was uh, one of the first Ones that was ferried out. The only two flying caribou are at uh, the Heritage Museum pars in uh, Albion Park, in not far north of of Nowra. Both of those are flying. In fact, I I did the test flying on uh, on one of those two uh, in uh, on one of the ferry flights that I did out of Canada. So yes, they're uh, they're still flying.
1: Let's jump from Vietnam, if you don't mind. How did yep. you end up working with the United States of America Air Force?
2: After the caribou, I was yeah we get posted all over the place. I got posted in uh, May 1965 to 37 Squadron. It had just been formed, and I was one of the uh, original pilots on the C-130E aircraft when we uh, C-130E Hercules when we purchased that and started flying the Hercules. And the reason the Air Force got the the E model Hercules in the mid 60s that was when Vietnam was was going the australian contingent was quite large then the army was already up there And we were doing a lot of supply trips backwards and forwards to Vietnam. We needed something like another squadron of Hercules. So we got the e-model Herx. And I flew the e-model on long-range transport flights, mostly into Vietnam. A lot of medevac flights, which were interesting. We can talk about that if you like uh, later on. But I flew from 1965 to 1970, getting quite a lot of hours on e-model Herx. My next posting was... To the United States on exchange with the United States Air Force. I flew uh, to... Is, I,
1: is I that, Pope you the, go to North Carolina with that one? Is that
2: one? I was posted to Pope Air Force Base, Tactical Air Command, uh, one of the key USAF units flying C-130E Hercules tactically. Yes, at, uh, at Pope. That was Fort... The Pope Air Force Base was the air base right next to the huge Fort Bragg uh, Army establishment. Fort Bragg's, the home of uh, the 82nd. Airborne, the 18th Airborne Corps, a whole bunch of uh, the, the special forces were all trained there. The Rangers were trained there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, the Pope was had uh, three squadrons of C-130s, and uh, we were virtually supporting the uh, U.S. Army.
1: Yeah, something you might explain. Uh, you weren't uh, an RAAF qualified flying instructor, but you became a United States Air Force flying instructor and promoted to squadron leader. Can you explain that?
2: Yeah, I went over as a as a flight lieutenant, uh, justice-aligned pilot. When I arrived, the squadron that I was posted to was already over in uh, Germany. They do three-month detachment detachments over to Germany. I never did one of those, but they had to do something with me so that one of the units at the base that was there was uh, the. Recruit Training Unit. Uh, It was the unit that trained US pilots on Hercules before they went into uh, into Vietnam tactically. So I went on to an RTU course, Recruit Training Unit course, and they found very quickly that I could fly the aircraft fairly well. I had a couple of thousand hours on it at that stage, but I'd never flown it tactically, but I had no problem. I didn't have to think about the aircraft. Uh, I had a lot of time on it. I, I could concentrate on what I was doing with the aircraft. So I didn't find formation flying or landing on short strips or anything like that very difficult and I was quite good at it. So the Americans said, well, we're not going to keep you just as a line pilot. Uh, we're going to use you as an instructor. I said, hang on, I'm not an instructor, not an RYF uh, an instructor. And they said, well, as far as we're concerned, you can instruct our crews. And I was a, virtually a USAF flying instructor. Now, the unit that, uh, or the units, the three squadrons that were there, virtually produced all the key tactics and that sort of thing of how to fly the uh, C-130E Hercules and all the the documentation, all the rules for flying Hercs, any problems that were occurred, all the the fixes originated out of uh, of Pope, and it was sent around the world. Mm. Now we have had a, another unit as well as a, a training unit. It had a unit called a standardization unit, and they wanted me to. They ended up putting me in uh, in that unit where we went out and checked. We'd get, we'd hop on on a, a cruise operation, get on a training flight. We'd hop on and do a, a test of them. We'd test the US pilots and myself and a couple of Canadians. We were virtually the key experience in this standardization unit. And at one stage, through normal promotion processes, I ended up being promoted to squadron leader. Now, that embarrassed the Americans because the, okay. the first RAN standardization unit was a, a the equivalent of a flight lieutenant, it was a captain. And they wanted me to run the, the unit. Uh, as a squadron leader, and I said, "Hang on, you don't want an Australian running the unit that provides all the doctrine for operating C-130, US C-130 Hercules, all over the world." I'm quite prepared to be the deputy, but I won't be the uh, the commander. So that was ha- that was what happened for the yeah, last few months. Yeah. I was here. I was the deputy and uh, as a squad leader, chief chief was a, a captain.
1: Your career, Kevin, requires almost a second interview, but I would like to conclude on a puzzle for me. How did you end up working with the United States Space Command? And you did it for five years.
2: Uh, yes, I did. I can't talk too much about that. At one stage, I, I spent three years in Indonesia as the air attache. I came back from there and I was put into the Joint Intelligence Organisation, and I spent the last 12 years of my uh, Air Force career in the Joint Intelligence and Defence Intelligence area. I was a branch head there. I decided I wanted to get out of the Air Force, and I was headhunted into a a Department of Defence unit. Uh, in Canberra, that was the policy end of the Narunga Joint Defence Facility. And that particular defence facility operated with the United States Department of Defence, their Space Command, US Space Command. And I did a lot of work with US Space Command, the policy end of it, uh, working Uh, virtually interfacing between Australia and then between the US and Narunga, the Narunga Joint Defence Facility, just out of Woomera.
1: So last question then, are you very pleased that the Australian Air Force is now looking at uh, starting its own space unit within Australian territory?
2: Very much so. The Australian Defence Organisation has got quite a lot of expertise that we can't talk about in the space area. And yes, Australian scientists have for a long time wanted to work doing the sorts of things that they've just done, launching rockets out of Northern Australia and getting involved in... You know, Australia is involved. People don't know a lot about it, but involved scientifically with some of the satellites that fly around the place. Yes, I am.
1: Air Commodore retired Kevin Henry. Anderson, you have a fascinating career and you've made a wonderful contribution to the Royal Australian Air Force. And I'm in particular, awe of your experiences with the Caribou and what you did and what the Australians did over seven and a half years in terms of rate of effort. So you should feel very proud of that and be congratulated as being a, a great asset to the Royal Australian Air Force. And I appreciate your time today, sir.
2: Thank you, Gareth. It was a pleasure.
1: Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping, and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavor and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Peradua and Astra.
0: This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families, produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the wellbeing of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.